going to tonight. We're going through, when I, on my Sunday nights, Wes is going through Acts. I'm going through the book of Judges. We're in Judges chapter 3 right now, and we're talking about, Lara, no spoilers, because I know this is one of Lara's favorite stories. 3 and 4 are two of Lara's favorite chapters in the Bible, which worries me on a huge multiplicity of reasons. But every bit of the word of God is profitable. The Bible says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction. And so this passage is profitable, and we're going to look at it, but this passage does have a little bit of a violent tendency. The entire book of Judges does. It's a book of, of conquering. It's a book of, of warriors and battles. So this chapter does kind of get into that realm, but I want to look into this real quick, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. We're going to talk about a few subjects. But I want to start with this. Our greatest battles we often fight in our lives are often our past failures. I think all of us would probably agree to that. Sometimes the biggest battle you fight is the battle of your mind getting over what you may have done in the past. Satan uses this tool called shame as a way to keep us tied down and useless. I almost brought up one of the one of the teens tonight and tied them up and they're really no use if you tie them up, right? And I'm not going to do that tonight because all the teens are looking at me like, who gets it? No one's getting it. But when we tie ourselves down like that, we become fairly use, useless. And when we decide to allow our sin and our shame of our past keep hold of us, we fight against not a physical foe, but a mental one of our own mindset. Ephesians 6, 12 says this, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, no matter how the political landscape of our world goes, or the, or the landscape of our relationships with other countries, the main enemy in our fight is not one that's a physical enemy. It's Satan incarnate. Now, Satan uses physical foes against us, but for the most part, our, our battle is, against the fl- is not against flesh and blood, but like the Bible says, against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And in Judges chapter 3, the children of Israel are again in that cycle of sin. We see them in this. They fall into idolatry, then they go into captivity, then they fall into a repentant attitude, which brings about a judge for deliverance, which brings about peace and then back to that cycle. And it's a cycle we all are in. We get victory in certain areas, then we falter and we get back into this this rut of sin. And the children of Israel are back in this cycle, but this time they're not fighting against a foreign conqueror. They're not fighting against a distant land. They're fighting against people and they're fighting against nations that are basically the scars, mistakes, and failures of their past. So let's look at this. Judges chapter 3. Let's start in verse 12 is where we're at. Judges 3 and verse 12, it says this. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. Othniel, as we know, the son of Kenaz, just died. He was the one that liberated them from Cushan Rishathaim. I had to practice that name again today. But Othniel has died. And the children of Israel fall back into this, this, this thing of idolatry and, and they sinned and did evil against the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. So here's the, say, here's the setting. The children of Israel have sinned. They've fallen into this cycle. And God brings about three neighboring nations against them. And here in Judges chapter 3, we look at the story of Ehud and Eglon, and we watch how God will use unique heroes for miraculous results. But the question is, what do we do when Satan brings up these old grievances and failures? What is our reaction to the mistakes we've made in our past? Do we allow them to place us in this prison of shame, or do we allow the sacrifice of Christ to set us free. So if you're taking notes, number one, let's look at that prison of shame. The prison of shame. And, it, and, he, and the Bible says here in verse 12, like I said, he strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. And he gathered Ammon and, and Amalek together, and they took the city of palm trees, that's Jericho. So they're in the city of Jericho, and Eglon was the leader of Moab. It's a Canaanite land to the southeast of Israel. It was directly across the Jordan River. It was their neighbor. And it was a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites from the time of Moses leading the children through the wilderness. Moab is a nation where ba uh, Balak is the king, and he summons Balaam to put a curse on the Israelite people. And we all know the story. Balaam's on his way on his donkey, and the donkey starts talking to him, right? <laughs> we, have, we keep a few mules at Greg and Heidi's, and one of them, if Flash the mule, Flash is possessed, I'm gu I guarantee you. If you want to see a possessed animal, go see Flash. He's little white with red eyes. Nothing is not of this planet. But if Flash started talking to me, I'd probably listen, right? And Balaam and Balak, were these. They, they were used of Moab, and they fought against Israel. Ammon, which is this other nation, was the nation to the northeast side of Israel. And they had a similar relationship with Israel. Amalek was another antagonistic, antagonistic nation. They were, they were the nation that Joshua and Moses fought against in the, in the Old Testament. And it was at this battle that Moses was held up by Aaron and her, and victory was assured. The story goes, God tells Moses, hey, you're going to win the battle as long as your hands are in the air. And as long as your hands are in the air, you'll be victorious. So Joshua goes out to lead the army, and he's fighting. And now if I had you all put your hands up for the rest of the service, let's see who's going to last the longest. Some of us are going to give out. I hopped up. Oh, I'm just being transparent with you all. I hopped up on the pull-up bar this week while no one here was in the church. I'm still sore. I hung in there for a little bit. But if I had you raise your hands up for the remainder of the service, we'd probably start to give out after a few minutes, right? Well, the story goes that Moses is putting his hands up and victory is going and they're, they're winning this battle, but he starts to get tired. And so Aaron and Hur come alongside him and hold his hands up so victory is assured. That was against this city of Amalek. But you see, these three nations aren't just enemies. They are blots on the record of Israel. You see, this prison of shame, it brings up our failures. How many of you guys have one of those family members that you see come in and it's like, oh, here he comes. Kind of want to avoid him. If you don't know who that is, you might think you're probably that relative. Just FYI. 
But we often have that type of person in the family that you're not really proud that they're a member of your family. Like they've really, they've really messed up along the way. And, you know, we have a really good put together family, but this one uncle or this one cousin or this one person in our family, you see Moab and Ammon, if you track their history, were descendants of a man named Lot. Lot was the relative of Abraham and he was the, he was the, person who went to Sodom and Gomorrah, and when the nation was destroyed, Lot had to vacate the city. Lot was not a good person to follow a lot of their, a lot of their legacy. And Ammon, or Ammon and Moab were descendants of an incestuous relationship he had with his two daughters after that point. They come from Moab and Benami were the sons. They were the half-brothers and sons of Lot. Their sin and rebellion at Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's sin and rebellion would be their legacy, and Israel only saw them as disgusting and unclean. To have them proudly conquering them, when they should have been wiped out by Moses and the Israelites years prior, would have brought shame to the people. You see, shame has an idea to bring up our failures. The devil will attempt to bring you down by bringing back things that have happened, that one person who knows what you used to be, the person at work who knows that you aren't always as godly in what you do or say. Whatever it is, the devil will find that that pressure point and he'll utilize it until he makes you submit. This story happened here in this church. We had a gentleman start coming to church and the gentleman had kind of a rough past, but it was making stuff right and started bringing his family to church and Becoming more and more faithful, well, another member of the church knew him from when they'd see each other in bars and other different things. And I remember this man came to my dad and said, hey, I don't want to be a stumbling block. The family seems to be growing. I'll step out if I need to. I'll step back so I'm not a stumbling block. God will never, ever ask you to be unfaithful in anything you do. You see, Satan was trying to get in this gentleman's heart and say, hey, that person who's sitting on that row in church, they know what you used to be. That person sitting over there, they know your mistakes. They know your failures. What if they bring it up? But God said it's all covered. You see, shame brings up our failures. Shame, it, this prison of shame, it brings up our sins. So we see Ammon and Moab were descendants of Lot, but Amalek was a descendant of Esau. Jacob's brother, the patriarch of, of the nation, Esau was tricked by Jacob and the relationship was never mended completely. You see, Jacob's deceitful actions towards his brother brought up nation against his descendants. And that sin that Jacob committed was marched through the streets of Israel as Amalek helped Eglon conquer them. You see, our sin keeps us captive. Our sin chains us down. It causes us to be held back. If I was to go back to the workout equipment back there and grab a couple of the 45-pound weights, put them on a rope, and hang them over your neck, Jeff, would it have an easy time moving? Jeff's a, Jeff's a tough guy, but 90 pounds hanging over your neck is probably a lot. 
And every little bit more that you put on Jeff, he's probably going to get more and more weighed down. And it's the same with each and every one of us. We can hold on to our sin and we'll never see ourselves moved. The word blameless used in the Bible has the idea of having no handles to grab onto. It means that you have nothing for someone to grab on and pull you down. We see it used in the context of deacons and pastors prominently, but we see it used with regular Christians. We are to live a life that is blameless before other people. Now you might be sitting here saying, hey, I'm not blameless. I've done all these things. We're going to get to that. Because you can't make yourself blameless. Recognize that right now. Your sin, the mistakes of your past, everything that's happened, you can't fix it by yourself. So you see, it brings up our failures. It brings up our sins. It brings down our morale. The Israelites are not a weak people. They've got a large population with soldiers in every tribe. They know how to fight and how to conquer, but their enemies subjected them for almost two decades. We see this, and so the children of Israel, in verse 14, so the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. It's not a short time. 18 years is not a short time. And this mighty nation that God once has has liberated multiple times, God performed miracles for, is subjected for 18 years. The loss of morale and enthusiasm was caused by a lack of faith and commitment to God. These boys at these wrestling tournaments, they've got an enthusiasm for what God can do. There's something exciting about that. We as adults tend to throw our logic, our fear, our self-conscious attitudes, our lack of faith. That enthusiasm quickly dwindles away. And we decide, when we decide to attack our sin, we say things like, I'm going to stop viewing pornography. I'm going to stop dwelling on my failures. I'm going to start being more faithful to what God has. But we attack in our own power. We will fail. The failures in our journey to get clean or stop sinning result in a loss of morale and enthusiasm. How many times have you started something and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm making a commitment right now. I'm giving this up. And then two weeks later, you see it start to dwindle. I'm going to make a plan. I'm going I'm to commit to it. I'm going to have an accountability partner. I'm going I'm to do all this and I can get it done. See the problem in that? There's a lot of eyes. You see, in our journey to overcome sin, you have to surrender yourself. And we see the power of surrender next. We see that prison of shame, the power of surrender. Look at verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. 
You see, the cycle for the Israelites progresses again, and God remains faithful despite the fact that they will eventually reject him. How many of you have ever been hurt by someone repeatedly? You tend to stop trusting them after a bit. If I go over there and I, I do something to Wes and I, I make Wes mad at me and I, I, I wrong Wes in some way, but I go to Wes and say, hey, Wes, I'm sorry, can you forgive me? And he's, he's godly, he forgives me and we restore our relationship. Well, two weeks later, I do the same thing and I go back and, hey, can you forgive me? After about the third or fourth time, it starts to get, I don't think I'm going to anymore. Our human logic has this idea that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with that. I'm, I'm done giving them a second chance. Aren't we grateful that God gives us unlimited chances? So we see that this cycle, and when we fail in our own singular efforts to serve God, we are met with two possible alter- alternatives. The first is live in captivity to our sin. Live in that captivity to, to our sin, or two, surrender to God and let him fight for you. The children of Israel now placed in position between captivity or surrender, and we, we surrender our sins and failures. We can see victory, but we need to surrender our hold on our mistakes, our desire for positive opinions from others, our desire for people to see us as successful. Surrender all of that. And you can see victory through God. Surrender is an interesting thing and completely countercultural to what the world believes. But to God, surrender has three defining attributes that can help this captive Christian. And we're going to look at these. Number one, surrender is powered by God. Look at verse 15 again. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. See that a deliverer didn't come out of nowhere. Victory didn't come out of nowhere. Victory didn't come from someone taking the lead. It didn't come from someone just standing up. It came from God saying, I will bring the right person. Surrender is God's tool for us, and it is vital for us as Christians to recognize that without it, we will fail again. Without complete reliance and subjection to God, we will be held captive. And it's our responsibility to recognize our weakness and grab hold of his power. 2 Corinthians 12 has kind of been sticking out to me a lot recently. We studied out for DMA and 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 says this, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. Paul was able to witness some miraculous things and he said, In case I should be exalted, I should be puffed up, I should be proud about these things. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. How many of you know someone who's really good at a lot of things, but there's one or two things that they they really aren't that great at? I'm the opposite. I've got like one or two things that I, I can do really well. There's about 14 other things. I'm subpar. But Paul states here, he says, hey, so I wouldn't get puffed up. God gave me this thorn and the flesh. And he says this, and for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure, pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see that bad past, that, that family member that's bringing you down, that physical ailment, it's there for a reason. We should probably stop asking God to take it away and said, God, show your strength through this. So surrender is powered by God. Surrender uniquely equips us. If you look at the name Ehud and look at his story, Ehud was of the tribe of Benjamin. In that time, Benjamin was the weakest of the 12 tribes. It was a tribe not known for their leaders or warriors. It was the smallest and considered least of the 12 tribes. It was Benjamin who was Jacob's youngest son. It was Benjamin that God used here in Judges. It was a child of the weakest tribe that God called to bring about victory. And it was Benjamin that was uniquely equipped for the task. Othniel, our last judge we talked about, was from Judah. He was of the strongest tribe. He was the relative of Caleb, the man in his, in his late age who said, give me my mountain. And God used a mighty man of valor like Othniel, but now we see Ehud, a man from the smallest, the weakest, most insignificant group. We might consider our lineage, our testimony, our background, or our spiritual journey as being insignificant or of no use. But God will determine what can and will be used. It's God who determines who is mighty and who is not. David was the youngest and became the mightiest king in Israel. Esther was an immigrant but saved the nation. Nehemiah was a cupbearer but rebuilt Jerusalem. Mary was a poor teenager but gave birth to the Christ child. You see, God determines what success is. Not our ideas. Not our logic. Our past is no longer our defining attribute. It's a footnote on our journey to Christ. If you need proof for this, Romans 8. If you want a, a passage to memorize, Romans 8. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 14. For as many are led by the Spirit of God... They are the sons of God, for you have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 26, likewise the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You see, that's who each and every one of us are. We're no longer condemned. We're heirs with Christ. We have a voice to God now through the Holy Spirit. In verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, 
who is even on the right hand of God, who also make an intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, I'm convinced, without a doubt, without a shred of hesitation, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, all those things we fought in Ephesians, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's who we are. We're no longer condemned. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're an heir to what Jesus Christ has. You have victory predetermined. God will take care of you. So view yourself by how God views you, not how you view yourself. So surrender uniquely equips us. Surrender is designed perfectly. There's that little white piece at the last page, uh, last part of verse 15. A man left-handed in that time, left-handedness, which would look like a weakness. You would be looked down upon as physically inferior and therefore not a threat to anyone. You see, we often look at our physical frailty and our weakness as faults in God's design. And we believe that we aren't what we should be or that we, we could be more effective if we were different. But these things often we often dwell on our nothing more than the unique yet perfect design of who we are to God. Ehud would have gone into the palace, as we'll see here in a bit, and the guards would have checked all the men of war for a weapon. They would have checked his left side. By culture and by standard, you would sheathe your sword on your right, on your right side, or your, yeah, your left side. I do left and right. It's really bad, so I apologize for that. You would have sheathed your sword on your left side. Knowing Ehud was left-handed, they would have looked at him as physically weak. But he also wouldn't keep it on his left side. He'd put it on his right. And the Bible says, but Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length. And he did gird it under his raiment upon his right side. I stole this from Mr. Tom. I've got to put it back or else I'm in trouble. This is the a stick Mr. Tom uses to measure the length between your guys' chairs. It's 19 inches. FYI. This would have been maybe a tad bit by about an inch longer than what the dagger would have looked like. So Ehud, the left-handed man, would have strapped that dagger to his right side. The guards would have checked him on his way in, and we see that this physical deformity, as people saw it, was the perfect design that God used. A design that makes you special and in your mind is inferior is what God will use to do incredible things. So verse 16, let's finish up this story real quick. But he had made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length. And he did gird it on, under his raiment upon his right side. 
And he brought the present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. That is King James-inspired word. He's a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, keep silent. And all that stood by him went out from him. So we see that Ehud was sent by the children of Israel to deliver a message and tells the king, he said, hey, I've got, I've got a special message. It's for your ears only. I imagine Ehud to kind of be a flattering individual, probably someone who's charming, easy to talk to, and he's, hey, I've got something specifically for you. And Ehud came unto him, which was sitting in, a summer par- in the summer par- parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed up upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. We get a graphic picture. I'm not going to go any farther than that. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. And when he was gone out, his servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet in the summer chamber. And they tarried till they were ashamed, and behold, he opened the doors of the parlor, and therefore they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead in the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried, and passed beyond the quarries, and escaped unto Sarai. You see, God's victory was perfectly designed. It was powered by him, and it was uniquely equipped. And it leads us to this last point. The potential of forgiveness. Every story in Judges has to have the theme of this. They turn back to God. Forgiveness is this intentional decision to remove the consequences of someone's debt to you. We all want to experience forgiveness. I think every person in here, if you've wronged someone, you want to experience forgiveness from that person. Whether it be God, a spouse, a child, a parent, whatever it is. But how quick are we to give it? How quick are we to give it? The children of Israel had consequences of their sin. It was their surrender that we see will allow them to experience forgiveness from God's judgment. But what does forgiveness allow us to do? What does forgiveness give us as Christians? Both experiencing forgiveness, but also forgiving one another. These are both vital and important aspects of our Christian life. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. I heard someone put it this way. If you're having a hard time forgiving someone, just realize you did a whole lot worse to God. You don't know what they did to me. That person wronged me. I, that's hard to get over. Our sin put Christ on the cross. What does forgiveness allow us to do? It allows us to move on. 
Look at verse 27. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the Mount of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the Mount and he before them. See, at this point, Ehud had killed Eglon and their leader was gone. Their, the, the, patriar- the king was gone. The, the leader of the army was dead and the people of Moab, Amalek and, and Am- Ammon are fighting for control. It's probably chaotic in the city of Jericho. And Ehud vacated the palace quickly, and he went to the place where he could overcome the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites. He quickly moved from one place to another. He didn't stay at the scene of the crime. He didn't dwell on the violent, dirty act. He moved away so he could help liberate himself and those around him. Ehud ran, gathered a force, and we'll see. But you see, when we allow ourselves to be forgiven and to forgive others, We are powered and strategized by God to move on. Verse 28, and he said unto them, follow after me. Or verse 27, sorry, and it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mount of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and he before them. And he said unto them, follow after me for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. Ehud was a smart strategist. He knew where he had to go. He cut them off at a place where they'd be funneled through. He cut them off at the bridges, the fords of Jordan, a place where they would have been vulnerable physically. See, God creates the way for us to move past our burdens and our sins, and it's through forgiveness that God lets us move on. And we need to move on. Isaiah 43, 18 says this, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall ye not know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters into the wilderness and the rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. See, forgiveness allows us to move on from the things that we've committed in our life, the failures, the problems in the past, move on from them. But also it allows us to fight harder. And suffer not a man to pass over, in verse 28. And they slew of Moab at the time about 10,000 men, all lusty. That means strong, violent warriors. And all men of valor and their escaped not a man. The Moabites, at loss without a leader, attempted to leave Jericho and cross the Jordan River back to their homeland, but Ehud was there and took the fords at Jordan, the Bible says. Their pathway was shut and escape wasn't an option. Ladies and gentlemen, our sin will put up a fight when we decide to go against it, and it does not fight fair. It goes for weak areas. It will strive to bring us down quickly, and it will be violent. When we decide to live in forgiveness rather than shame, our sin is trapped, and it will fight. The Moabites had 10,000 strong men, the Bible says. They were ready for battle. Like I said, they were violent, strong warriors. They were not to be treated as weak. But Ehud had the power of God on his side. We are placed in a situation where we will either choose to follow the path God has set, no matter how strong or frightening it may be, or we can follow our own logic and strategies. 
It's that choice we make every day. See, we wake up every morning and make a choice. Who am I going to let win? We talked about it with the kids in Quam. We talked about the old man and the new man, and I used the illustration. You've got two dogs fighting in you at all times. you got that old man and you got that new man. Which one wins? The one you feed more. Ladies and gentlemen, this isn't a, this isn't a battle you're going to fight over many, many years. It's a battle you fight every single morning. The Israelites were farmers, shepherds, masons, regular people. But with God, they slew 10,000 men of valor. Because they knew God was on their side. Elisha tells the young man in 2 Kings verse 6. Fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Bible says that the Israelites were outnumbered. Elisha was leading the, leading the people of Israel against this foe. And young man comes and says, we're, we're doomed. They've got too many. There's no way we can win. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. God's going to fight for us even though we don't see it all the time. But you see, it allows us to fight harder. And lastly, it allows us to experience freedom. If I had that teen come up and had them tie themselves up with rope. And if you had a choice to be bound willingly or be set free. If I gave you that choice right now, you could be tied up for the rest of your life or you can go free. Kind of a silly question, right? We make it every single day. The Israelites spent 18 years in captivity, in captivity before they decided that God was a better master than Eglon. They took almost two decades to decide that maybe they should follow Yahweh instead of Baal. And the moment that they turned from their sin, surrendered their shame, and accepted forgiveness, God gave them their longest period of uninterrupted peace. Look at verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. That word score means 20. 80 years of uninterrupted peace. You see, forgiveness allows us to move on from the bondage of sin and shame and experience freedom. So is shame holding you prisoner? You're finding it hard to be successful because of the things in your past, the mistakes of this last week, the failures in the battle of your mind. Are you suffering because of these chains of sin? Surrender, surrender is not only necessary, it is vital for success. Stop saying this, I'll try this now, or I'll do it this way instead, and I'll manage for a couple days. Instead, give it to God and let God take your shame and use it to build you up. Because surrender brings freedom. Forgiveness brings freedom. And freedom comes, through, complete, comes to, through the complete annihilation of the enemy. See, Moab was fleeing Israel. They were vacating the land. Ehud was a victor without even having to go to Jordan. The people were leaving. He still had work to do. He went to the fords, and as he said, 
and they slew of Moab at the time about 10,000 men. They killed every person that was against them. But he had to get rid of that problem completely. Matthew 5, 27, this is the last thing we'll be done. We read this passage and it's Jesus talking and it comes across as funny, but it's, it's necessary in our relationship with sin. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. And cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. Cast it from thee. For it is profitable to thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. This last thing, if you're struggling with sin right now, there's something holding you back from living to your full potential, might be time for a radical amputation. Might be time to get pretty severe. Pastor mentioned it today. The statistics on pornography in churches is astounding. It might be time to give up that phone, to delete that social media, to get off this kind of things, to put filters in, to get vulnerable with someone. If you're struggling with your spouse, it might be time to get vulnerable with them. And have a radical amputation to what sin does. So remember that though. The only way to beat shame is to surrender. And you can experience that forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. We love you, Lord. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Give us a good night tonight. Keep everyone safe as they head home. It's your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.